So I'm recording it now and it looks like it's working. So okay. we'll welcome today to Commodore Peter Scott, Conspicuous Service Cross CSC of the Royal Australian Navy, retired. Um, Peter has given me a, an introduction that um, I'm keen to read out because uh, I know Peter in, an, in another way um, and he's very, I'm very excited to have him on the program today, The Courage to Lead um, interview series as, as Peter kind of emulates everything about the courage to lead in the circumstances where he's had to do his leadership over the last pretty well 40 years in the, in the Royal Australian Navy. So this is Peter's intro. Peter Scott is an executive coach and leadership development professional with over 35 years experience leading specialist teams in complex and demanding environments. Joining the Royal Australian Navy as a 17 year old midshipman in 1983, he rose over three decades to be the professional head of the Navy's elite, the submarine arm. During that journey, Peter survived and led others through at sea fires, floods and explosions passed the most demanding military command course in the world and commanded the longest deployment ever conducted by an Australian submarine. In all, he has served in 20 different command and leadership appointments over 34 years. Peter holds a Master's in Coaching Psychology from the University of Sydney and now works to unleash the courage, compassion and wisdom of leaders. His memoir, Running Deep, an Australian Submarine Life, will be published by Fremantle Press in early 2023. Peter is married with an adult daughter and runs trial, trail ultra-marathons just for fun and relaxation. <laughs> Good on you. <laughs> the rest of us couldn't even contemplate that. And I might just add um, I, I, where, how I know you. So Peter and I... Um, uh, uh, members of what's called the Expert Author Academy through Kelly Irving um, and Kelly put us together pretty early in the piece. Um, yep. Me as a budding author of the book that I'm um, in the current process of uh, editing, the, the Courage to Lead, Life on the Line as a Police Commander, I met this guy that you're going to listen to today, Peter, Peter Scott. He is such a modest, unassuming man that you'll find out as we go into the story, has done it all um, and he's someone we all should know about. And, he, and if I can give, use a technical term, Peter's been kind enough to give me uh, an early draft of his book, The Running Deep, An, an Australian Submarine Life, A Submariner's Life. Um, and I use the highly technical term that it is unputdownable. I loved it. <laughs> so um, let's go, Peter. Uh, let's, let's kick it off for the readers. Um, so who is Peter Scott? Where did he come from? Thanks, Alan. Um, great to be here on your show. Thanks for the, uh, the invitation. Um, so you got a little bit of a snapshot there, a sort of external view. Um, who am I? I guess you'd start at the beginning. Um, I'm a Sydney lad. Uh, grew up uh, in a little place called uh, Riverview, uh, Lane Cove, down the lower north shore of Sydney, um, which by Odd coincidence is where I'm back living in Ken now, sort of 40 or so years later. Uh, and had a had a great uh, childhood. Um, uh, lived with my mum and dad and uh, four brothers, my brother and three sisters. Um, so a pretty pretty big bunch. Um, enjoyed a, a loving and stable 
home and family life. Uh, went to a couple of big schools, um, played a lot of sport, um, pretty outdoorsy, um, and, and did enough on the academics to sort of get me through a, a reasonable mark and, and off to do a few more adventurous things. So I know where this story is going, but it's, it's interesting how you described your schooling life. Um, you did enough of the academics to get you through. Would, would, would you say that you were a stellar student or would you, would you be someone that um, just did enough? Uh, so in my school days, um, nothing brilliant about my academics, but I was a pretty keen student. I was keen to do well. I put a lot of effort and work into my studies, um, perhaps I needed to, um, and, and like I say, you know, at the end of the day, did, did okay. Um, I wasn't always as diligent with my academics, so university life was a pretty different story. <laughs> <laughs> there I absolutely did just enough to scrape through because uh, there were other things going on. Yeah, so as university take us to the next stage um, uh, in the Defence Force or is, or is university before you join the Defence Force? No, with, with Navy. So, um, so I decided pretty early on, probably as an early teenager, that I was keen to um, join one of the services. Eventually uh, came to a mature decision and decided to join the Navy. Um, and at that time... Uh, Navy was putting its officers through the Royal Australian Naval College down at Jarvis Bay. Um, so went down there and, and through the year did uh, just all sorts of naval training, uh, you know, in gunnery or communications or how to look after your sailors or whatever it might be. Um, but that was all in the, uh, that was all outside of the, university academic semesters so if the university semester was on that's what we were doing and we studied our first year of I did a Bachelor of Arts did our first year down at the Naval College and then uh, the next couple of years we were actually up in Sydney living out on um, South Head at HMAS Watson the base out there and going into uni each day um, and again for those couple of years we'd be off uh, doing naval training if we weren't in the academic semesters. So it's a pretty good balance. So can I ask um, for someone who, like myself, um, who's often looked at the two kind of... There seems to be two tiers of joining the Defence Force, whether it's Army, Air Force or Navy. Um, there's the training you do when you're going to become a soldier or a, a sailor. Yep. And then there seems to be another training that you do to become an officer. Do you make that do you make that decision, or does the Navy make that decision? Uh, it can be a bit both. So uh, certainly, my dad encouraged me to uh, join as an officer. I think he, he saw that I had something that would allow me to do that. Um, uh, quite often, it comes down to uh, you know your interests, uh, and very often the folk at the recruiting centre will be able to help steer you in the right direction. Uh, you know, sailors tend to perform very uh, specialised roles. You know, they might be um, 
they might be technicians or they might be analysts um, and they'll get some you know broad naval training but then uh, be qualified as for example a marine technician to, to look after the propulsion plants on the ships or whatever it might be um, the officers there are different streams as well so i joined as a, a seaman officer um, but there are mechanical engineers there are electrical engineers uh, there are lawyers um, so there's a number of different different streams okay. and you know we would we would do a university course that was appropriate for that stream okay so you said um, uh, that your dad suggested you, you uh, join the Defence Force um, and be, as an officer in particular, but why did you particularly see the Defence Force as, your, as what ultimately become your life? What? Because you're only 17, aren't you? I think that your intro said you were joined at 17. Joined at 17, yeah. So I don't know that I thought about it a whole lot, but I, looking back on it... Um, I can sort of see the roots in uh, my wider family. So um, we didn't have a long military pedigree, but certainly my, my grandfather, Jack, had served in uh, the First World War. Um, he uh, married uh, my grandma mm. <laughs> after the war, uh, and they had, they had three sons. Uh, one became a a priest, uh, one served in the uh, Royal Australian Air Force during the Second World War, yeah. and the other, my dad, became a public servant. So they were all very much, um, they were all family-oriented men and community-oriented men, and, um, you know, they all dedicated their lives to service in some way. Yeah. Um, so it, it was probably just a natural extension to go off and, and find a role in a profession that was service-oriented. Okay. Yeah. So the next question I'd like to ask you, and I'd like to ask this question early on in the interview, um, uh, because it is a leadership interview, uh, what was your first experience of leadership, of true leadership? I think I'd actually point all the way back to my granddad. related to some of those comments I just made. Um, you know, he, he joined Australian Infantry Forces as a 16-year-old, so well and truly underage, and took himself off to France to fight on the Western Front. Um, he, uh, he did all right there until, I, until he copped a German machine gun bullet to the head, um, which he survived um, and was repatriated back to Australia. Um, so there's a lot to, you know, his wartime experience and service there um, that I think shaped our understanding and our impression of him. Um, and, you know, it was a very clear uh, early indicator that he was keen to, A, perhaps live an adventurous life, <laughs> uh, but B, to, to serve others. And he was willing to, you know, step forward and do that, along with thousands of others at the time. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, he was very central to uh, 
to our family um, was very much um, a central patriarch of the family and a guiding influence in the way he lived his life. Um, you know, very, for example, just very respectful of his wife and, and all women, uh, very family-oriented, um, but also willing to be part of the community um, and lead in that way. What a wonderful so thing! To, yeah, what a wonderful thing! So classic leadership role, yeah. but certainly one that shaped me. What a wonderful thing to say about your grandfather! That's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Okay, um, well, there's so much to your story, but it, it, probably the, everyone's uh, would like me to ask. I would say, why did you choose? Like, you have a perfectly good boat that floats on the top of the water. Um, that you could have that most most people uh, that's the, where they live their life but you chose to another thing that's like a, 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 an iron bubble that goes underneath the water yeah. <laughs> and yeah. you spent your life there why did you do that for? Do that? Yeah. so uh, I didn't go directly into submarines I, I was actually in the Navy for probably half a dozen years before I, I moved across uh, and by that time I, I had a a few different experiences. I served in uh, patrol boats uh, on uh, in a training ship, uh, in a destroyer, and in the flagship. And they're, they're all very different parts of and um, elements of the navy. Uh, but what happened around that time, sort of four or five years in, was that I met my wife to be, and I kind of realised that um, you know the navy wasn't going to be all bit of skittles, and it was going to take some uh, some determination, some hard work, and it was going to involve some personal sacrifice, um, and, and not just from myself, but probably from those around me as well. So I decided that um, as long as I was in the Navy, I would render the most effective service that I could. And this was also... Uh, about the time of the Falklands War. So I joined just after the Falklands War. Um, so I had images of HMS Conqueror sinking the Belgrano, the Argentinian flagship, uh, during that war. Um, and it was pretty hard to beat as a, an image of a you know, decisive naval power. So I thought, well, we've got a submarine arm. I'll, um, I'll head that way and um, spend my time in that most potent arm of our Navy. So that's kind of how, how it went. And do you want to describe that? Um, like your book talks about that. Uh, uh, there's a, I can't remember the exact words of it, but you, the, the effectiveness of a defence force is um, directly related to the effectiveness of the submarine fleet that that country, particular country has. You, you can word that in a better way. Um, uh, but um, what does that mean to, to the listeners and to someone that's going to read your book? Yeah, so certainly um, our submarines are at the very sort of pointy end of, of offensive capability. They're, they're absolutely designed and built and operated as offensive weapon systems. They're designed to sink ships and other submarines, um, and they're exceptionally 
capable and able to do that and they can be exceptionally difficult to counter. Um, so because they're such effective offensive platforms, they also operate as a very effective deterrent. So just being out there with other navies, knowing that you've got this highly effective, highly lethal um, you know, submarine fleet at sea can shape the thinking of you know, regional political and military leaders. Um, so, you know, that's, you know, really, it's, it's the lethality, um, you know, that, that impacts their thinking, but also the fact that the submarines can, you know, stay at sea um, at extended range for very long periods of time, um, therefore creating immense doubt about where they are, what they might be doing, and, and where they might pose a, a risk or a threat. So, <coughs> me. yeah, that's that's what it sort of comes down to. Alan. Okay, and it did when you when you decided to join and make the submarine armor of the navy and make that your kind of lifelong contribution to your Navy um, experiences. Did you know that going in, what you just described, or did you learn that after going in? Uh, I, I think I, I knew it going in, but I, I came to understand it much more fully over time. Okay. Um, and certainly as I joined the submarines, it was, there was no lifelong ambition there. Uh, it was... It was the next thing I would do, um, but I'd say I got hooked pretty quickly. Okay. Uh, and it, it was probably only, you know, after a couple of years that I started to generate an aspiration to maybe one day command one of the submarines. Okay. Um, so can you um, give us an indication, um, like you're in the first few years, you're you're part of the submarine command team and part of the crew. How many, how many people are on us an Australian submarine? Yep. So um, uh, back then we were sailing the, the Oberon class uh, and we would take uh, up to around 70 folk to sea. So um, pretty cramped <laughs> sort of conditions. Um, every now and again we'd have something like a fleet review and um, you know, ships and submarines would, would line up at anchor in a harbour. Uh, we did this for the 75th anniversary of the Navy and, and again for the bicentenary of um, the First Fleet. And uh, you would get all of the officers and sailors out onto the casing, out onto that upper deck of the submarine mm. and stand them shoulder to shoulder from, from bow to stern. And uh, you would wonder how the hell we ever got back in the thing. It just looked like too many sardines for the one can. Yeah. Um, so that's certainly a, an aspect of, of the life is being able to live on board in really confined uh, quarters and close proximity with that number of, of people. Um, I might have lost the thread of the question there though, Alan. No, no, no. How did you... No, you, you, how many people are on... No, you, you're describing it quite well. So... Um, so when they're when they're parading up on the on the top deck of the submarine for you know a, a fleet review, they're all in their beautiful white sailor outfits. Yeah. Does that is that how it looks 
Every, day to day underwater. <laughs> what's what's it look what's it what's it look like underwater? So uh, uh, underwater these days, uh, they wear a, a sort of camouflage patterned uh, uh, uniform. Uh, it was a bit less regimented than I was at seeing the O boats. Um, certainly, if you were off the Australian station and, and away on deployment. Uh, you'd sort of relax into what was most comfortable. It might be a pair of old shorts and a trucker's T-shirt and a pair of sandals. Okay. Uh, uh, but, uh, yeah, no, pretty different on board. Um, very, uh, you just have to live uh, practically and pragmatically. Um, so not a whole lot of space for ceremonial uniforms once you're on the boat. So probably just to describe to the listeners and to me, like I'm, I'm just trying to, Imagine it, because those boats are pretty tiny. Um, if I'm a, I'll ask you two questions. If I'm a sailor, how do I sleep, and who do I sleep with, essentially? Um, and if I'm an officer, like before I'm the commander, the commander, the, the captain of the yeah, boat, yeah. Um, how do I sleep, and who do I sleep with? Yeah. So uh, on board on any navy ship, really, um, folk are sort of accommodated by. Uh, rank and rate. So typically the officers will live together and sailors will live together, senior sailors with senior sailors, junior sailors with junior. Um, and certainly on the larger ships, um, that would be broken up again so that you know technical rates will be messed with other technical rates um, and warfare sailors or senior sailors will, will be with like. Um, so that's typically how you how you're sort of distributed through a ship or a submarine by, by rank and and rate. Um, on the submarines, uh, those old I-boats uh, had the officers were accommodated midships, was, was the wardroom, and the sailors were, were forward and aft. There was a junior sailors mess forward, a junior sailors mess aft, and a, and a senior sailors mess in there as well. Yeah. Um, and, you know, very often, certainly on the Collins boats today, um, people will be bumped in what we call a, a six-berth. So, um, just think of a, a a small room or a large cupboard. Yeah. Three bunks stacked one on top of each other on, on either side. Yeah. Um, and they'll have a, a very small amount of storage space, personal storage space in there for themselves, um, and uh, and a bunk. Six and, six people. Ouch. Sorry. Six people. Yeah. yeah. Ouch. Okay. They're they're built. Um, you know. The submarines are designed and built for efficiency and effectiveness. Um, comfort and aesthetics come a very, <laughs> very poor uh, last. So, and it, it's a pretty, um, it's a hard and cold environment. You know, a submarine on the surface from the outside looks very sleek and very simple. Uh, the contrast once you get inside is, is remarkable. Um, you know, they are jam-packed with high-powered machinery and high-voltage electrics, um, high-pressure air, high-pressure hydraulic systems, high-explosive weapons. <laughs> um, and it's all very, uh, very close. And if you don't understand what you're looking at, it can look to be very, uh, very confusing at, at first blush. Okay. Um, and I, I mean, there's a whole range of questions on that. Like, everything you just described is quite amazing in its technology but it's quite um, lethal in its potential if something goes wrong as well yeah so um, we put a 
great deal of effort into knowing and understanding our systems, knowing and understanding both the capabilities and the limitations of the systems that we've got on board, um, how they all come together and sort of create what really becomes a, a living, breathing beast. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, especially the more modern submarines will have layer upon layer of redundancy for critical systems. So understanding, um, you know, if you do have a, a defect or a failure, how you can work around that and, um, you know, what you, what you can fall back to or how that constrains you um, is really, really important. Okay. Um, I think we, because I've read your book, so there's about two or three chapters that, that go into detail about what happens when it goes wrong uh, and what your crew talks about. So I think we might leave that to the listeners uh, as a bit of a dangle to, um, uh, for them to, because it's quite horrific uh, what can go wrong and how quickly it can go wrong. Um, so let's, let's uh, and, I, might, and I, I, I mean, you could talk about that for hours, but let's, let's leave that for people that read the book because it's, um, I recommend that, those chapters in particular. Your um, bio that you asked me to read out kind of took, uh, talks about what's what I want to ask you next. So you you made the decision early on as a submariner that you wanted to be a captain. That that's the correct title, isn't it? A captain of of the um, of a submarine boat, and that and and for and for that to happen, you have to do this. I think you described it in your bio. You had to pass one of the most demanding military command courses in the world, and it, and it, and it's it's known to everyone who does it. As perisher, because if yep. you if you don't fail, you perish, and you only get one get and you only get one go at it. Um, do you want to describe? Like this is a, an amazing chapter of your book, um, uh, and you're there. Um, do you do you want to describe what perish is all about and what that meant to you and and how hard it was? <laughs> yeah. So the um, the term actually uh, originally was contraction of. The original name for the course, which was the Periscope School, um, but it has certainly come to um, uh, reflect probably the pass rates um, uh, as as that that perisher um, moniker. So it it's a remarkable course in in one way, but it's it's unremarkable in another. And the way that it's unremarkable is. Um, you know, we received really comprehensive uh, training at, at every step on our way through to command. So, you know, there was initial uh, submarine training to qualify, um, but then to become a torpedo officer or a navigating officer or a sonar officer or an XO, um, every one of those steps had a had a really uh, complex and intensive course to run through before we could be qualified to go and do those, mm. those jobs. Uh, so in that way, Perish was just an extension of that of that model. Um, but it is remarkable in the um, in the diversity of what you get to do um, on that course. So to tell you a little bit about it, um, historically we've gone over and uh, done perishing with other navies, in fact, first with the British Navy, the Royal Navy, and, and then more recently with the, uh, the Dutch Navy. Um, and it's broken up into a couple of parts. So there's an ashore phase where we, we sort of 
work up on on our skills and then a C phase where we, we go to see to test those skills. Another sure phase where we build our sort of tactical expertise and then another at C phase where that tactical expertise and the ability to command and lead the submarine, mm. i.e. the people, um, is evaluated. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I did my parachute in a duck submarine, uh, Rufus or brownfish, uh, and we did it over in Europe um, around British waters and through the North Sea and so on. But they tend to conduct them um, amongst some very large NATO exercises uh, where you just get you know, every possible type of <laughs> opposition, be they you know, maritime patrol aircraft or helicopters or frigates or other submarines. Um, so you really get tested and really get put through your paces. Um, so uh, it's a great adventure. It's a, it's a learning adventure, but there's a fair bit on the line. Mm. Um, either you will pass and, and be qualified to go home and command a submarine, or you will not pass. Um, and for most, that's pretty much the end of their seagoing submarine career if they don't, if they don't pass the balls. Um, they tend to head off and, you know, find other avenues yeah. uh, within the Navy. So I think, um, I, you know, there's so much in this chapter in the book. Um, you said you're, you're placed in, in uh, you were over there in a, in a NATO exercise. They're testing your skills to become a captain of a, of a submarine. You're, so when you're put in, in charge of, of the, as the captain of the submarine that you're looking after in your assessment... Yeah. Yep. The crew's not English, are they? They're, they're every, every, aren't they every, every no. nationality? So describe how difficult that is. Yeah, so, um, so in, in my parachute boat, they're, they're all Dutch. Um, and it was a concern for me going in. I, um, I just didn't really understand how I'd be able to command them if I couldn't speak their language. Um, but what I found pretty quickly was that, well, there were two things. One was... Um, they worked up the submarine before we arrived and they modified their routines such that all the executive orders, um, you know, to uh, put on a snort or dive a submarine or fire a torpedo were given and acknowledged in English. Mm. So, so the Dutch did that for us so that we could just order them in English and they would go on and do their thing. Yeah. Uh, but the other thing was that, uh, uh, you know, people are people <laughs> and um, you don't have to understand precisely what someone is saying to understand whether they are relaxed and comfortable or concerned and excited. Yeah. Uh, so, so pretty quickly you realise that just through tone and body language and so on, you could work out where you needed to pay your attention. Yeah. Um, and, and where you, where you didn't need to uh, to focus. Do you do you want to um? I think one of the things that in that chapter. Do you want to describe one of your uh, best kind of um, manoeuvres? Hey, like the 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 idea of perisher, from what I can gather, is is for you to avoid detection by all these other navies trying to find you, um, uh, and 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 continue that um, deception evasion for as long as you can. Do you want to describe that section of the book where you got your submarine 
into an impossible place. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, the, the greatest tactical advantage that any submarine has is, is stealth. People not knowing where you are, not being able to find you. So preservation of stealth really does shape how we, how we uh, think, how we behave, how we act. Um, it's, it's not about preservation of stealth, though inevitably you're given a task or a mission to achieve, um, and on Perry Show, they make sure that you've got a lot of opposition to make that as difficult as, as possible. Um, so certainly, uh, there was there was one night where um, we were moving south to north through the Irish Sea. We had um, uh, we had a position and a and a mission that we needed to conduct early the following morning, um, but our battery was. Um, running very low and so the submarines are diesel electric submarines so we use generators to charge up batteries and that enables us to, to run pretty silently and quietly so we had to get our batteries charged we had to make ground to the north but we had uh, frigates uh, maritime trolley and helicopters all hunting through the Irish Sea <laughs> to find us um, so I actually took the submarine in to within a couple of hundred yards off uh, some cliffs on the Irish coast, um, which is navigationally uh, exceptionally close, um, particularly given the sort of lack of you know, lighthouses and navigational marks and so on we had available to us. Um, and we sat in one position, just stemming, there was about a three knot tide running past the coast. So we weren't moving which made it harder for people to, to detect us. We were hard up against the coastline, which made it harder to detect us. And, and we're underneath some cliffs. We could actually see the headlights of cars um, driving sort of a couple of hundred metres above us uh, along the top of the, the cliffs as we sat there uh, uh, with all of our diesel engines running, um, charging up the, the battery so that we'd be ready to go in the morning. And the other advantage that we had in there was um, you'd get a fair bit of noise on the coast, so yeah. that sort of masked some of the noise of the, the generators running, which made it harder for, for others to hear us as well as to see okay. us or pick us up on radar. I think, yeah. So it was just it was a matter of um, uh, trusting the team to be able to um, manage the submarine in that close, keep it safe in that close, get what we had to do done and be ready to go again. The, the next morning, but it's the sort of position that I would never, um, prior to the course, have considered taking a submarine there. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's what we needed to do, so that's what we did. Hats off to you. Uh, I think the funny part of that story is when you handed it over to your next mate, he went, "No way, get it, get oh, it yeah. out, get it out of there before yeah. I take over." <laughs> it, it was the middle of the night, and um, we were due to hand over as duty captain. And uh, I walked him around the, the entire control room, giving him a hand over all the different systems and so on. And I left, I left the navigation. I left telling him where we were until last. And, yeah. and when he saw where we were, he said, <laughs> no, I'll be back in an hour, mate. Get, get us out of here before I take the submarine. But he, uh, once he did take it, he kind of, I think he understood the sense of it. And um, once he was comfortable, he took us back in there anyway. So it was good. I think that little snippet, 
um, of you, uh, tells everyone who Peter Scott is um, and, and tells everyone what Running Deep is all about. Like that Running Deep story is full of stuff like that. Um, and I think one of the things I loved about, because uh, you, you're so modest about it, but the, the head um, teacher of Perisher, as soon as he knew you were an Australian submariner, um, gave you a kind of a level of acceptance and kudos, I suppose, gravitas, um, that Australian submariners come prepared for that course with the right skills. Yeah, I think he... Uh, so teacher is the guy who um, effectively runs runs the course and runs you through your paces. Um, and at the end of the day, if a decision makes, needs to be made on whether you pass or fail, he'll, he'll make it. Um, but he had worked over the years with a number of Australians and he certainly had an expectation that we would arrive well prepared, as you say, and and uh, and, and professional. Well done. Congratulations to you. I mean, I'll, 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 that's, I'll um, what do they call it? A blooper alert. You pass the course because that's that's how you that's that's how you become Commodore. I'll become Commodore Peter Scott down down the track. Let's let's jump um, uh, to the next part of uh, which is another riveting part of the book. Um, where yeah, in your bio you talk about this, you commanded the longest deployment ever conducted by an Australian submarine. And my question around that is. Um, you were selected as the Australian submarine captain to take an Australian submarine from Australia all the way to Alaska um, in, into another hemisphere um, to take part in uh, submarine exercises where no international uh, Navy boat had ever been before. Um, that, that's correct, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you're, the, so the, the, the floor is yours. You tell us all about that. <laughs> so, yeah, I was in... Um command of Commons, uh, and the submarines were relatively new at that stage, uh, and in fact we're copying a fair bit of heat and flak from, uh, from the press over different issues. Uh, one of those was uh, we were trying to work out just how stealthy the boats were, whether they were in fact really noisy or, or not. Um, and so to understand that, we took Collins from Perth over on the West Australian coast into the Pacific and then across the Pacific to Alaska uh, to work on uh, an acoustic range that the US Navy has. So um, have a range up in a place called Bean Canal in Alaska, uh, which is a very uh, deep, isolated and quiet piece of water. Uh, and they'll have a couple of different sets of hydrophones uh, up there so that they can measure the noise generated by the submarine when it's underway, uh, so dived, um, and also uh, they can sling the submarines between a couple of huge buoys and you can effectively dive the submarine uh, statically, just, just stopped in the water. Um, and we, would, we spent a couple of weeks over there on that range um, running through a program where we would um, put the submarine into different configurations. So we might have <coughs> one diesel running or we might have you know, different pieces of machinery run up or shut down. And we'd take recordings of the submarine um, in all those different machinery lineups and configurations and at different depths and at different speeds and so on and build a really comprehensive sort of acoustic footprint or fingerprint 
um, of the of the submarine, um, which, as it turned out, is is actually an exceptionally quiet platform. Okay. So that was uh, that was a hoot. Uh, but it's a bloody long way in a diesel boat. They do not move quickly. Um, so we were away from Perth for 185 days on that one. A couple of stops on the way uh, into Sydney and into Hawaii. Um, and, a, and a few other things tacked on around all that. So, you know, whenever we could, we'd be exercising with other navies and doing some tactical development and so on along the way just to keep us sharp. Okay. One of, one of the things, particular things I loved about that chapter is like your equivalent in the US Navy that you were going to do all your work and exercises with um, actually asked you uh, for a profile of every one of your sailors and, and officers so he could billet them with similar people in his Navy. Is that, is that how it's done? Yeah. I, I haven't heard of yeah, that before. So the, the US Navy is exceptionally good to us in many, many ways. Um, you know, we've got a, a very, particularly in the submarine arm, in the Pacific, we've got a very close relationship across a lot of different sort of layers with the US submarine. And uh, so that was uh, USS Alaska was uh, our host boat when we pulled into Bangor. Uh, Bangor, Washington is a is a big US Navy base where they operate their ballistic missile submarines out of and into the Pacific. And uh, so we were there for a, a three or four, maybe maybe five day uh, stopover. And uh, yeah, the USS Alaska crew effectively just uh, adopted our guys for, for those days, took them out, showed them around the town. Um, and yeah, literally they, uh, you know, if they had a, a Harley, Harley enthusiast or, you know, a craft beer enthusiast or whatever, they sort of matched up our folk with them. Um, with whatever they, they were interested in and, and looked after us exceptionally well. Yep. So, I think that's a real highlight of, of, of your book is um, the level that some particular leaders go to to, to make people feel valued, I suppose, and supported, yeah. Yeah, and I think you know, they know and understand what it's like to be away from home for a long time, to be you know, operating dived for a long time. Um, so you know, they're pretty well placed to... Um, just give you those couple of days of reprieve from all of that. Yeah, it's great. I'm I'm conscious um, the interview's not about the whole book, so let's go to the next part of your service that your book kind of highlights from, and there's so much in the submarine section that that readers can find out about. Um, For a period of time, you actually left submarines and you did um, service in our defence forces, as still part of the Royal Australian Navy, um, in Iraq and Afghanistan. What does that do to you? <laughs> what does it do to you? Uh, <laughs> um, so I did. Uh, I, you know, there's, just, there's only so many positions on board submarines that you can serve, and I'm, I'm a naval officer first, uh, I guess. Um, so I was, uh, I was based in Baghdad, uh, Iraq through 2006 and 2007, and I was there as the deputy commander of the uh, Australian Joint Task Force. So we had a, a national headquarters there, uh, providing national command over 
we had 10 different task groups in the Middle East at that time. So my role was really to run the headquarters and commander command of those forces. Um, and it was, uh, it, there was a lot of paradox actually. <laughs> uh, you know, I was there in Iraq at a particularly violent time. Um, it was just before uh, David Petraeus launched what they called the surge, which was a, an injection of additional 30,000 US forces to regain control of Iraq, which had pretty well been lost. Um, so it was exceptionally distressing to see and be around uh, the levels of violence that were being uh, that, that was present there in the country at that time. Uh, but it was also professionally highly satisfying and rewarding to be working with a couple of thousand, about 2,000 highly specialised and tremendously capable Australian servicemen and women. Um, you know, we had uh, ships at sea in the Gulf protecting the Iraqi oil rigs. We had uh, maritime patrol aircraft up uh, hunting for roadside bombs in Iraq. Uh, we had uh, soldiers protecting the ambassador and the embassy in Baghdad. Uh, there were combat engineers um, you know, making the streets and villages of, of Afghanistan safer for, for people there. Mm. So this really diverse raft of capabilities and skills resident in the sailors, soldiers and airmen that were deployed with us. So professionally, you know, working with and around them was, was uh, fascinating. I learned a lot and, and really satisfying. So what, what was a normal day? Like um, like us office workers, uh, an eight-hour day, what, what, was a, what was a normal day like for the Deputy Commander of Australian Joint Task Force, uh, Peter Scott? A, a normal day was long, very long. So... <laughs> uh, it's probably operating on about uh, maybe five or six hours sleep a night and pretty much everything else was work. So into the headquarters uh, very early in the morning. Um, a lot of uh, just email, signal traffic, you know, just sort of mechanics like that. Um, a lot of meetings and briefings with other, because we're there was, you know, part of a multinational force. So a lot of engagement uh, beyond the headquarters with other headquarters and other commanders. Mm. Um, some of it was quite reactive. You know, you kind of never knew when a bunch of rockets were going to come flying over the walls. Yeah. Um, you never knew when someone was going to find themselves in a bit of strife out in theatre. Um, so it, it wasn't particularly predictable. Um, that said, uh, you know, I try and get a run in most days, um, or, or get to the gym, you know, you had to, working as hard as you were, you had to also look after yourself, you know, some of those deployments were pretty long, mm. um, and if you weren't looking after yourself, you know, you could grind yourself into the dust in about a week. Yeah. Um, so self-care and self-preservation over there was were pretty high on the, the agenda, so that you could do your job for the others. 
do you want to give a quote that your daughter gave you about about you being there? Like, yeah, I remember the, the book talks about this. You were worried. You actually spoke to your daughter about going over there, and she said something pretty significant back to you that um, I think the listeners and the readers of your book will gather what it's like to be a submariner and what it's like to be in theatre um, in, a, in a real war zone. Yeah, so um, this was before I deployed to Iraq. Um, my, my observation of our daughter, who was probably in her early teens then, was that um, she pretty pretty level and, and not particularly concerned at the fact that I was heading off to Iraq. And uh, I wasn't sure whether she was uh, not understanding or, you know, not sort of facing up to some of it. Um, so I had a conversation with her to ask her where she was at. Um, and what she explained was that um, for, for most of her life up until that stage, you know, my deployments had been at sea and submarines. And... And she never knew where I was. Um, so, you know, she'd be asked at school pretty reasonably, you know, where's your dad? Um, and she had nothing to say. Um, she knew I was at sea, but, but that didn't mean anything to her schoolmates and it didn't mean very much to her. Mm. And this was just a function of the way that we deployed and deploying the submarines. You know, we'll, we'll have some idea of when we're due in a port or when we're due back. Um, but fundamentally, we don't go into a whole lot of detail about where we're going or what we're doing. Mm. Um, uh, and in fact, uh, for for most of the crew, they very often don't know until we get out there um, where it is that we're going or what it is that we're precisely that we're going to be doing. Yeah. Um, so, so she kind of said, hey, Dad, you know, that's what I've been dealing with. Um, you know, at least when you're in Iraq, I'll know where you are. Yeah. I know it's I know it's a war zone, I know it's violent, I know it's dangerous, but for once I know where you are. Um, That's and such, that was yeah. that was her sort of understanding of it and way of dealing with it. That's such a I, I found I, I, I had to read that a couple of times in your book. Um, that's such a a big uh, I think often our kids give us a, our biggest kind of wake up about how our lives impact on them, or what they've what they've learnt from them, from us. Yeah. Um, and that's a yeah. big, that's a big chapter in your book. So hats hats off to you for sharing that in your book and and with the listeners today. I'm conscious of of, of time, but um, I'm pretty sure everyone will be really interested uh, what what the snippets of your story are. So let's jump to the next thing. You're actually promoted to the submarine commodore of Australia. Um, what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> what what do you what do you do with that role? That's a, that's a pretty grand title. <laughs> uh, so my, my role was uh, Director General of Submarines. Um, and uh, to explain that, it's, it's the, the senior submariner within Naval Headquarters down in, uh, down in Canberra. So um, in that role, you know, I had a, a staff, a submarines branch, and effectively we're responsible for the, the strategic leadership of the the capability, um, so prioritisation on resources, capabilities, and so on. So a lot of it was um, sort of project-related work. You know, if we needed upgrades to systems on the submarines or whatever, there'd be projects run to achieve those. 
Um, a lot of it was related to dealing with industry, who obviously do a tremendous amount of work um, maintaining our submarines to the standard they need to be maintained so that we can take them safely to, to sea. Um, so I've been working with industry um, as they, you know, took the submarines offline to, you know, do some really heavy work often um, in the dockyards and so on. Um, there was also things like um, workforce issues. So at, at times we've had um, difficulty building the workforce and maintaining the workforce that we need to effectively um, operate the, the submarine capability. Mm. So uh, writing and then executing a strategy to take the submarine workforce from where we were then to a much better place was a large part of the work that we, yeah. we did down there during that time. So I'll give you, I might, so, uh, I might give listeners a bit of an indication of at one stage, and this is before you were in that role as Director General of Submarines, some of your submarines were offline for four years, weren't they? I think, I, I think the book talks about. Yeah, some, some were offline for more. So the, the Collins class were built um, sort of through the late, late 90s. Um, and uh, I think we lost... We lost control of the relationship between Navy, defence and, and industry. Um, and within a decade, we'd, we'd pretty much run out of functional operational submarines uh, because boats were just held in, in maintenance and in dock for too long. Um, but uh, some really good work done immediately before I got there sort of recalibrated that rewrote that contract effectively yeah. with industry um, and since that time we've uh, you know done exceptionally well in achieving um, you know serviceable seagoing submarines at the sort of rate that we we need to and that we that we might expect um, and that of course has had uh, the, you know the lack of seagoing submarines um, inevitably has a big impact on uh, the morale and the um, effectiveness and the experience levels of the crews. Um, so having seagoing submarines, you know, that are out there doing interesting work as they are now, um, you know, builds layers of experience on the on the troops and uh, just goes to a much more effective and capable arm. Okay, I think I think he's talked about in towards the end of this chapter in the book. He talked about how many. Boat, how many seagoing submarines are out there at any one time, and how many are in at, in at, in getting service? Are you allowed to say that, or is, or not? Is that? I, look, it's pretty simple, and it, it um, you can apply a sort of ratio of one to three to a lot of complex military platforms. Um, you know, if you've got half a dozen submarines, you can probably expect that a couple of them will be fully serviceable and fully deployable, and fully crewed and fully stored at any one time. You can probably expect that a couple of others are either, you know, preparing for a major deployment or or doing, you know, some other work like trials work or whatever it might be and a bit less available. And you can probably expect that one or two of them will be in some form of intensive long-term maintenance. Um, so if you understand that that's what you get out of a fleet of six submarines, then you know, you don't get too upset about that, but you do demand that that, that is what you get. Yeah, 
And that, and that didn't exist before you, with any great reliability, before you took over the role. Uh, we've, we've had a couple of periods where, um, you know, we've fallen into a bit of a hole in that regard. Yeah, over the years, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, one thing I particularly like about your story, and anyone listening to you, I think will pick it up, you're very modest. Um, you're so modest and so humble, but uh, you, you touched on it a couple of times, the, 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 the submariners across the world share a bond and an understanding of each other. Uh, you know, when you describe how the US welcomed you into, into, their, into their port. When you took over the role of Director General Submarines, um, one thing that kind of jumped out at me was your ability to build international relationships. Um, do, do you want to talk about that and, and, and why that's so important? Yeah, so uh, certainly I think, you know, submariners from any nation will have some level of shared experience. Um, you know, not many people get to experience being you know, dived at sea in a, in a naval submarine. Um, and, and it probably doesn't matter too much what type of submarine or for what nation you're serving, you know, you'll have some common experience there. So, and, and particularly with our allies, um, you know, Brits or the, the US uh, and partners like Japan, um, you know, you, you have a bit more of a common because you're operating in similar waters with probably similar purpose and, and similar missions. Um, just help me back onto the question. So, but, so what, what was the importance of those international relationships? Oh, what, 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 what did you achieve together? Yeah, so um, there, there is again a bit of a paradox there because um, submariners are exceptionally and necessarily protective of their capabilities. Um, so in one sense, you know, you tend not to operate very closely with anyone other than your closest allies um, in submarines at the same time. But for a couple of reasons, uh, our engagement, our relationships with other navies, um, when I was in that role, were particularly important. Uh, so one was we were trying to decide uh, who we would partner with to design and build the attack class, what became the attack class submarines. Uh, so that took quite a bit of engagement with a number of potential partners, so uh, the Japanese, the Germans and the French, principally. Mm. Mm. Um, I think beyond that, though, uh, you know, in the Pacific, there are a number of nations which have fairly similar views of uh, how they'd like the region to operate how they'd like nations to work together under a, an agreed rule of law um, with respect for the laws of the sea and so on. Um, so being able to work closely with submarine forces, for example, the United States Navy and the, the Japanese Navy and others, Singapore, Malaysia, uh, Vietnam, uh, is really important. And... You've got to start that somewhere. Uh, it's pretty difficult to start it at sea, so you need to start it with strategic relationships with the headquarters and the, the commanders of those those nations and those forces. Yeah. 
So that was that was certainly a big part of, and would continue today to be a big part of that role. I think that's a, a major part of your your story for me anyway. Was um, like here you are. I mean, you've got the skills to become a sub submariner, then be to become a captain of a sub submarine then become the director general of submarines but you just don't stop there um you actually enhance the relationships across the globe about how we're we're seeing and you've you've been very modest and humble about what that is but it takes someone with particular skills to do that so anyone that reads the book will i think will be blown away by how well you did that so hats off to you peter we're just about there so um how so? The next part of your book pretty well is um, is how how do you retire great gracefully? <laughs> uh, yeah. So gracefully isn't a, isn't a word I've probably applied to it before, but it, it, I, my retirement from full time navy was pretty smooth at the end of the day, um, and I think for me uh, that was largely because. It was just the right time for me. I'd, I'd achieved uh, personally what I'd more than I'd probably hoped to achieve over a bunch of years, and for a whole bunch of reasons, it was time to uh, step away and you know try my hand at some other things. Um, as I as I left full time service, I remember a conversation with my wife not long before. Um, for a very long time, I'd, I'd held the view that. Whilst I was in the Navy, I would be, you know, 1,000% committed uh, and 1,000% involved. But that once I left, uh, that would be that, you know, and I'd leave that chapter of my life completely behind. Um, and she sort of challenged that and said, look, it's been such a big part of your life for so long. Why would you, why would you cut it off at the neck? Um, and, and that led to a decision for me to... Um, yes, retire from full-time service, but join the reserves um, so that I could maintain that connection and to work out um, you know, the ways in which I'd like to serve in the reserves. Um, so that certainly eased things. It wasn't, you know, this cataclysmic jump off the cliff and, you know, it's all over sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, I, I left the Navy without any uh, clear view of... Um, you know, any other destination where I had to be or where I had to go um, and was quite willing to just, uh, you know, explore a few things and trust that something would, something would come through and, uh, you know, like find a, find a way forward. Okay. And I think that's, um, yeah, towards that section of the book, there's, um, there's a particular telling line where I think you were the, you might have before, been as a captain, but um, of, of a submarine, and you step back and let the rest of your crew do the roles. And when they did their roles, you were just blown away. And, you, and I think that the final line of that chapter is, um, my job is done. Like, you know, you, you couldn't... That, so it kind of sounds like um, at the end of your career, you, you'd done everything you wanted to achieve. Your job was done and what's next? Yeah, perhaps. Um, and certainly, you know, a very important part of all of those roles that I that I did in the Navy was not just doing the role yourself, but, but helping prepare others to do, um, you know, to do their best and achieve what they might. Yeah. Um, so uh, that's always something that I found very satisfying, was being able to help others to reach their potential 
um, and do things either individually or collectively that um, they might have they might have doubted whether they could, yeah. they could pull it off or not. And the book's full of that. How you've um, how you actually empower others to to do their best. Um, like whole crews and and your your boats and your captains and uh, it's 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 full of those kind of stories. So um, I might just go into the the last question. You, you I think your pretty well your last chapter talked about your own challenges with with your own mental health. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So there's there's bits of that through through the book. Um, I think I had different challenges at different times, um, as you do as you move through different parts of your life. Um, I certainly had a lot of challenges with alcohol early on, um, and probably only really got a bit of a handle on that after I'd sought some professional support outside the Navy. Yeah. Um, uh, certainly had some difficulties with depression at times and with anxiety um, and again only really got handled on that once I sought some professional help mm-hmm. um, and and certainly with the anxiety that was uh, I think by the time I started seeing psychs for my anxiety um, I'd <laughs> probably been through a few traumatic days and I could pretty clearly link some of my anxiety to uh, some of those more traumatic days and to some of the professional demands of the, mm. the jobs I've been doing. Yeah. So I was happy to uh, utilise, or happier to utilise the, the professional services that were available within defence. Uh, and then certainly as I, as I left... Um, I kind of stepped away knowing that I had some, uh, pardon me, some perhaps not fully resolved uh, issues going on, <laughs> um, and again sought the sought the support of um, some psychologists to help me work through those and just uh, damp down a couple of the fires so that I was confident I could move forward without without things coming up to smack me. Uh, later on in life, uh, uh, that's so a few challenges along the way, but but uh, uh, I found the ways to, to accept who I was at those various times, and, and at those times found the ways to, to to move through or around and, and forward. Yeah, and again, um, I don't expect you to go into chapter and verse now because we're we're only on a on a. On a short interview, but um, the book, anyone that reads the book will, will be blown away by how you laid bare, how honest you were, how personal you are at those various stages in your life. Um, like some of the stories just leave, left me shaking myself. <laughs> no, not all that, yeah, shaking would like because it's so raw how you describe certain things. So I take my hat off to you again that you're that, that honest and that prepared. For someone who's obviously achieved what you've achieved, which not not many people would ever do, um, that you you show that you're normal and human. Yeah, my <laughs> wife would uh, agree with the normal bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Human, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, last two questions. Now, uh, three questions. You've written a book about your experiences. The book is called Running Deep: A Submariner's Life. 
what will readers take away from running deep? Uh, I think it's like a lot of things, Alan. It'll depend a little bit on what they uh, what they're looking for. Um, there's a bunch of different things in there. Certainly, there's a few. Uh, I think leadership lessons in there. Although I, the last thing I want to do is is lecture people on on leadership. But if people are looking for that, I think they'll they'll find it in there. Um, one of my uh, hopes is that. You know, I'm very conscious that I've, I've not lived an exceptional life, but the life that I have lived is not accessible to most people and very hard to accurately imagine. Um, so what I wanted to do was, you know, give people some insight into the life of a, an Australian Samaritan, um, what it's like uh, to live that way, uh, what it takes um, you know to, to excel as a, an Australian submariner and uh, and they're, they are all excellent mm. <laughs> in their own ways um, and what it means what it means to the people the men and women who you know crew the submarines and who deliver the capability um, so that's why I'd, I'd hope people would take away is, um, some insight in that regard, I mean, I've just—I mean, I'm only one or one reader, um, but that was what the biggest key to it was. Like, most of us have no understanding about what you did every day for for, for no. you know thirty years, thirty years of your life, really. So yeah, thirty plus years of your life. Um, what did what did you learn yourself about leadership in writing the book? Certainly, a couple of things were, were reinforced along the way. Um, but that, there's almost a little parable in in writing the book, which was just this journey of uh, learning and discovery. You know, I knew going into it that I was I was going into uncharted waters. Um, so, you know, you mentioned Kelly earlier. I knew that I had to get help. Um, uh, so I got myself a book coach in Kelly Irving. Great to be part of that wider community of aspiring authors and, and authors, um, and of course, you know now uh, with Fremantle Press and every day I'm learning from you know the publisher, the editor, the marketing people, on all of that. Um, so the parallel is you know that, that leadership is just this never-ending journey, and being willing to uh, you know step out in a direction, give something a go. Uh, seek advice and help along the way. Um, you know, for me, there's a lot of a lot of parallels there in, in writing the book, and, and perhaps the other one is um, is around the power of reflection. So, you know, literally all of last year, I spent going back through journals, photos, letters, um, articles, reports to try and bring myself back into my life as a teenager, my life in my 20s, my life in my 30s, and really um, relive that, uh, <coughs> relive the context um, and experience it all again so that I could decide what it was that I wanted to bring forward and, and lay down in the book. And, 
you know, hindsight is a wonderful thing, but it's been a great experience looking back through my life and reflecting on what was important to me and why, um, reflecting on my motivations, reflecting on the people that I went through that journey with um, and, the, you know, the people that inspired me, supported me, whatever it might be. So probably those, you know, just never, never ending sort of learning when it comes to leadership and the power of reflection is, um, is immense. Yeah. Well, I think, as again, as one reader of your running book uh, memoir, I can say that I uh, took away all those things. Um, especially um, having the courage to do something new and surrounding yourself people with, with people that know how to do that something new. Yeah. When you don't know how to do it, do it yourself, so you know, and you're, you're you're a great example of that. So, last question: What's next for Peter Scott? Uh, what's next? Well, launch the book. <laughs> Still working at that. Uh, it'll be out um, early next year. Uh, so that's that's the next immediate chapter. Um, my work as a as an executive coach, as you mentioned early on. So, um, with a bit more time on my hands, with the book written, probably lift up that work a little bit more um, and otherwise just press on enjoying life yeah uh, well hats off to you Peter you're, um, I've really enjoyed interviewing you here today I hope our listeners will I, I expect this will be one of the most popular interviews because everyone wants to know about what you do um, and just a guarantee for listeners as soon as I get the heads up that Peter's book Running Deep A Submariner's Life is uh, due to be published I will publish that uh, as wide and uh, to as many people as I can. So thank you, Peter Scott, for being part of the series today. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Alan. I hope your uh, your readers or your listeners enjoy the show. I'm sure they will. Thanks, mate. See you later.